organization. Do you know what it's called? Its name is Spectre. And do you know who links them all? Me. Welcome, James. You came across me so many times, yet you never saw me. What took you so long? Is this really what you want? Living in the shadows? Hunting? Being hunted? Always alone? I don't stop to think about it. James Bond is back in the upcoming Spectre, but to be honest, he never really left, now did he? Created in 1953 by British Intel operative turned journalist turned novelist Ian Fleming, the world's most famous secret agent and action-adventure hero in general first burst upon cinema screens ten years later in 1963's Dr. No, which single-handedly and instantly not only made an international star out of a relatively unknown character actor named Sean Connery, but forever altered the pop culture landscape. While spy adventures in movies and television had existed before the James Bond films, everyone forgets TV's The Avengers debuted two years before Dr. No. The worldwide juggernaut, which began with that first 007 thriller, then reached its zenith with 1964's Goldfinger, would spawn a decade of enjoyable, if often empty-headed knockoffs and rip-offs such as James Coburn's Our Man Flint films, Rat Packer Dean Martin's Matt Helm series, and female power renditions such as Modesty Blaze, starring Antonioni's sex kitten Monica Beatty, Fathom with Raquel Welsh, and even America's sweetheart Doris Day in Caprice. Most impressive, however, were a handful of pretty damn good inspired buys, the best of the lot surely being TV's The Wild Wild West, described by his creator as James Bond in a saddle, and most importantly and memorably, also hailing from the TV arena, the Cold War-born Mission Impossible and The Man from UNCLE. In fact, while the calendar I'm looking at right now swears it's 2015, in some respects it kind of feels as though we've entered a Peabody and Sherman-like wayback machine, as the second half of this year alone is lining up big-screen, feature-length, IMAX, Dolby Atmos-infused reduxes of Mission, Uncle, and Bond once again, all after one another, and causing us to wonder, is this late 2015 or the late 1960s? Second your equipment from Q-Branch and consider this one standard issue, for while this message will not self-destruct in five seconds, it is eyes only for dyed-in-the-wool fans of that once and again ever-popular subgenre of cinema affectionately known as spy-fi. Welcome to the Movie Sneak with Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online and Jim Delaney of thelunchmovie.com formerly known as The Grindhouse.
You like spy movies, Mr. DeVere? Nowadays, they're all a little serious for my taste. The old ones. Marvelous. Give me a far-fetched theatrical plot any day. <laughs> the old Bond movies. Oh, man. Oh, when I was a kid, that was my dream job. Gentleman spy. I always felt the old Bond films were only as good as the villain. As a child, I rather fancied a future as a colorful megalomaniac. What a shame we both had to grow up. Jim, it's good to be recording with you again. Of those who've been following our podcast escapades, if you will, over the last two and a half years with The Grindhouse, realize this is the first episode since our comic books to film special a few months back, wherein popular graphic novel artist Adam Hughes and film producer Stephen P. Wagner offered their opinions as to what constitutes a decent and memorable comic book to film adaptation. And uh, for those who were wondering, no, we didn't shelve The Grindhouse or anything of the sort. But uh, when the opportunity presented itself to take a revamped version of our show, as Michael Douglas said in Wall Street, into the tall weeds where the big dogs go, (laughs) which is taking it national with a large new coast-to-coast network, it, uh, cue that Brando voice, was an offer we couldn't refuse. (laughs) Along those lines, a great big thanks and a shout-out to Bob Cho and to Sean Carr of Art19. And for those of you wondering what the hell the phrase the movie sneak comes from and what the hell does it mean, as with The Grindhouse, it goes back to mine and Craig's individual childhoods. Practically shared childhood from across <laughs> like, like multiple states, right? In, in the same way that those wonderful, grungy, sticky-floored inner-city Grindhouse movie theaters became some of our earliest film schools, allowing you to see a double feature or even a triple feature in one afternoon, so was the movie sneak, another version of our early film 101, where as kids you'd pay for one feature, then duck in afterwards when the manager or the concession stand folks weren't looking and just sneak into a second movie. And it even had its own drive-in equivalent when your dad would tell you or your brother to duck down behind the back seat when the car pulled <laughs> up to the box office so he could save on you know, right. a couple of admission prices or at least one of them. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> and uh, while two screenwriters can't officially condone that kind of behavior today... No, <laughs> it would be a straight-up lie to say that wasn't a beloved part of our childhoods and subsequent film education. So, there you go. While the creation of the term sci-fi in 1954 is credited to legendary genre producer and archivist Forrest J. Ackerman, he humorously rifting on the then-popular term hi-fi, Many debate the origin of the later copycat phrase, spy-fi. Essentially, as if you couldn't tell, describing the spy espionage genre, but infused with high-tech, slightly ahead of its era technology. Regardless of whomever is ultimately credited with the creation of the term spy-fi, all concur that the primary creation of the concept belongs to author Ian Lancaster Fleming. In 1952, As the story goes, at the age of 43, and in an attempt to calm his nerves on the eve of an impending marriage, the former ideas man and fixer for the British Admiralty penned Casino Royale. Very loosely based on a non-successful personal attempt by Fleming during World War II to bankrupt whom he believed to be members of Germany's Abwehr intelligence apparatus 
at Lisbon's famous Casino Estoril, which because of Portugal's neutral wartime status, was said to be a gambling den for agents and various expatriates from around the world. An immediate publishing success in the UK, it took a while to gain popularity in the US, Casino Royale did immediately garner the attention of numerous filmmakers. And after a 1954 TV adaptation starring Barry Nelson as an American Jimmy Bond and Peter Lorre as the villainous gambler Le Chiffre, the theatrical rights to Fleming's spy tales, at the time at nine novels and one short story collection, were finally secured by producers Albert R. Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. While the first two films, Dr. No in 1962 and From Russia with Love, 1963, were worldwide hits, it was the next installment, 1964's Goldfinger, which became the Jaws and Star Wars of its day, breaking box office records around the globe and setting off a still-going pop culture trend in film, television, and literature. From copycat TV shows like The Wild Wild West, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., I Spy, It Takes a Thief, and Mission Impossible, to more realistic anti-Bond literature such as the novels of Jean Le Carre and Len Dayton, the success of the 007 films launched the 60s-era spy-fi craze into high gear, forever changing not only what kind of material would be produced, but also how all film, television, and literature henceforth would be produced and marketed. In a 1963 TV interview conducted shortly before his death at the age of 56, Bond creator Fleming spoke of some of his legendary character's origins. When I started to write these books in 1952, I wanted to find um, a name which wouldn't have any of this romantic uh, overtones like Peregrine Carruthers or whatever it might be. I wanted a really flat quiet name. And one of my Bibles out here is uh, James Bond's Birds of the West Indies, which is a very famous uh, ornithological book indeed. And I thought, well, now, James Bond, now, that's a pretty quiet name. And so I simply stole it and used it. Yes, well, sex. Bond takes his sex when he finds it almost as casually as he takes a drink. Well, he has one girl per book approximately and, and that's one a year I think that's uh, he's a bachelor and he moves around the world pretty rapidly and um, I don't see any great harm in that myself no, he's unusually fortunate in meeting these lovely and cooperative girls yes I envy him <laughs> now me personally my first exposure to the whole spy-fi genre would be uh, 1973's Live and Let Die which for me was kind of a turning point in my creative career uh, talking about your film school 101 as a child Live and Let Die would be the first grown-up movie I went to go see on my own. It would be the first sound. It would be the first album that I bought with my own money. Uh, it would also be the very first grown-up book that I read. Um, you know, apart from the stuff that you would get at the library and the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and that sort of thing. So, um, for me, my introduction to the the whole Bond world and spy world was Live and Let Die. And then, of course, I started backtracking, and you would see Goldfinger on television and From Russia With Love on TV and what have you. And, of course, I was familiar with Mission Impossible and The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and I Spy and all those series. But at the time I watched them earlier, I didn't realize they were some good, some bad knockoffs from the Bond series. But uh, going back and enjoying those, 
for me, uh, and it kind of um, why I love the Bond film Casino Royale so much is because I am just happy to see Bond allowed to be Bond again. Um, I've gotten into a few discussions, debates with some people online in recent days talking about how much they enjoy Mission Impossible and things like that and Kingsman, and I love those too. But um, I said, yeah, let them handle the larger-than-life, even comic booky side of the street, but let's let Bond be Bond again. So for me, my introduction to the whole spy-fi world would be um, James Bond, the novels and the film, and then going back and backtracking and uh, enjoying TV series like The Wild Wild West and It Takes a Thief and I Spy and Mission Impossible and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. So that would be my introduction into the whole genre and uh, why I have such opinionated views on some of the new movie versions, for better and for worse. <laughs> what about <laughs> what about you, dude? Uh, you know, I, I've, I've often chided uh, millennials, um, younger people. I think you and I have had this conversation before about people I know in, in, okay, so now they would be in their thirties. Um, people in their twenties, when or in their teens, when the Austin Powers series came out, and they were oh that, and then they would finally see the Bond movies. And go oh that's so Austin Powers. No, Austin Powers is making fun of the Bond movies. Mm-hmm. This is so Bond. It's not the other way around. Stupid. But in a way, my introduction was sort of the same because for me it was Get Smart. You know, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw the, I saw the, I think the first Moore, the first Roger Moore Bond I saw in the theater, pretty sure was Live and Let Die. Um, might have been Man with the Golden Gun, and I might have seen Man, uh, Live and Let Die on TV. Either way, those were my, those were my first two. Um, and I, I liked them. I didn't get what the big damn deal was for, for how, you know, for what a cultural icon Bond was. It wasn't until Spy Who Loved Me that there was a whole, that this is, this is just too awesome, and I need to be aware of all of them now. Um, but before that, by that point, I had seen Get Smart as after school TV in the same block with, right, with Adam's family and the Munsters and Gilligan, right? Um, so, so I already knew, I already knew all the tropes. I already knew sending it up. Um, but I hadn't seen many of the movies yet. And I, you know, like we'd mentioned our man Flint earlier, I would see those on set Sunday afternoons on, on local TV. And, um, especially something about the Flints, those always played. Um, and it, and it, you know, it, it should have been a, 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 a warning sign to me the difference of, of quality and the difference of prestige in that in that in the early seventies, right? Our man Flint was showing on Sunday afternoons. But remember, like whenever a Bond movie showed in the seventies, and it was like a it was a special right, and it was a Sunday special night. event, and it had that special little yeah. logo though. Come on with the yep. bongo drums and stuff. Like they let you know that like this is you know yep, we paid yep, a lot yep. of money for this, so pay attention, right? So <laughs> yeah. So and so from my earliest. My earliest introduction was one the Roger, a few Roger Moore movies that I was underwhelmed by. Two, Get Smart that I loved. Three, having people older than me telling me that okay, yeah, Roger Moore is okay, but don't hold Bond against that. You got to see the Sean Connery ones. And back then, when do you see them? You see them the, when they come on in those special events. And back then, it was after my freaking bedtime, right? So like, I was a toddler for Christ's sake. So really, if we were looking for like the the moment where the, someone just turned the light on. Yeah, when my dad took me to a double feature of Dr. No and, and Goldfinger on a Friday night way past my bedtime when all my other friends are going to see some stupid movie that no one remembers anymore. Like Herbie, <laughs> Herbie goes to Monte Carlo or exactly. something like that. Right, 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 yep, right. Yep. <laughs> I'm sure Don Knotts was involved. Or right, Dean right, Jones. right. Yeah. Super dead or something. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, my connection to these. Cool. Yeah. 
And not too long after that, you know, then we get great Cold War 80s movies like Gorky Park, which wasn't even a spy movie, right. but it had such a right. spy groove to it, right? Or yeah, uh, Fri- Firefox, again, more of an action movie, but it had good spy ethos. So then was, by the time I was really aware of it, then we already started having the crossover. You mean it'll be difficult? Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. The electrical system. Oh, that might work. Uh, no. Hydraulics. Okay, stand by. No, oh, they're encrypted. Benji, the plane. Yes, the package is on the plane. We get it. Can you open the door? I'm by the plane. Benji, can you open the door? Uh, maybe. Open the door when I tell you. There are television series which become popular and even famous, but a rarefied few which actually enter pop culture history, to that point where those who've never seen a single episode are so familiar with its concepts, tropes, and cliches, when a modern remake, redo, or big screen version finally comes down the pike, it's akin to meeting a long-lost relative whose entire background you feel you already know, be it family photo albums, old letters, and the recollections of parents and others. Such was and still is the case with Mission Impossible. The most popular and arguably tech-savvy of the 1960s-era spy-fi TV craze, Mission also outlasted all of its broadcast competition well into the more cynical and sophisticated, so to speak, decade of the 1970s. Launching each episode with the now-legendary phrase, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds, Mission Impossible detailed the adventures of a secret government troubleshooting unit referred to as the IMF, Impossible Missions Force. Its core members consisting of a planner, leader, a master of the skies, femme fatale, tech genius, and a strongman. The brainchild of veteran TV writer-producer Bruce Geller, at the time best known for Western series such as Have Gun Will Travel, The Rifleman, and Rawhide, Mission Impossible's agents, using a combination of high technology, mind-bending psychological warfare, and old-fashioned sleight of hand, each week brought to book a murderer's row of evildoers running the gamut from world dictators and rogue intel operatives to corrupt politicians and syndicate mobsters. Inspired in part by Jules Dassin's 1964 caper classic, Top Cappy, the non-fiction book about grifters The Big Con, which also influenced The Sting, and the sleek look and tone of the Ipcrest file, Mission Impossible was produced and financed by Desilu Studios, the company founded by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Notwithstanding its memorable cast, including Peter Graves, Martin Landau, Greg Morris, Barbara Bain, and Peter Lupus, 
and its who's who list of writing and directing talents, Mission Impossible's most lasting pop culture legacy is its famous theme song, composed by legendary Argentinian-born jazz artist-turned-film-composer Lalo Schifrin. The jazz orchestra maestro, who in his early career wrote for and toured with Dizzy Gillespie and Xavier Cugat, would become one of the film industry's most respected composers, with scores as diverse as the Amityville Horror, Enter the Dragon, Voyage of the Damned, and Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry series. But it's that badass 5-4 polyrhythmic signature Mission Impossible theme, which to this day is deemed by many the most famous tune in TV history. Ironically, however, it wasn't Schifrin's first choice. He'd written another main title, Mission Theme, of which series creator Bruce Geller wasn't as fond. What we currently known as the ubiquitous MI theme was originally a piece of secondary chase music at the climax of the show's pilot episode. Geller liked it more, had it moved to the beginning of the show, and the rest, as they say, is history. Oh, and by the way, that hand lighting the fuse in the opening credit sequence of the original series? That's Bruce Geller. In 2003, actor Martin Landau, who played the master of disguise, Roland Hamm, reflected on Mission Impossible's origins in the initial reaction to the series from Desilu Studios owner Lucille Ball. Lucy admittedly said she never understood Mission Impossible. She couldn't believe that people would actually sit through these convoluted, complex plot lines. With Mission Impossible, you couldn't go to the bathroom for too long or couldn't answer the phone for too long without losing the essence of the show. So what the sponsors found out was that they, uh, people didn't leave for the commercials and they started buying the products a lot. And uh, that's a good thing. Now, the cool thing that I like about Mission Impossible in general and the newer Mission Impossible films in particular, which a lot of people don't realize, is that um, Mission Impossible and Star Trek have very similar DNA, uh, both the TV shows and the movies. Um, right from the get-go, both Mission Impossible and Star Trek were products of Desilu Studios, which was uh, the studio that uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz had founded uh, when they became successful enough to purchase the old RKO studios. And uh, Desi Lu gave us uh, shows such as, um, my goodness, so many, um, Armis Brooks, The Untouchables, uh, and the Andy Griffith Show, uh, The Dick Van Dyke Show, on and on and on. But certainly three of the most popular were uh, The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, and Star mm-hmm. Trek. And the neat thing about Mission Impossible and Star Trek, yeah. when they were in their first runs uh, on Desi Lu, they uh, featured a lot of the same production personnel, writers, directors, and what have you, as well as a lot of the same cast members. I remember in an interesting uh, interview on the Inside the Actor Studio, Martin Landau, who uh, played Roland Han on the TV series, uh, talked about how he had auditioned for the role of Mr. Spock as well, and how he eventually turned down Spock because as an actor, he felt that character was too um, stifling emotionally whereas Roland Hand was a master of disguise, and every episode he would get to, in a certain respect, play a different person. He would get to play the person that Roland Hand was playing. So you had uh, Leonard Nimoy, George Takei, writers like Harlan Ellison and what have you, who actually jumped back and forth from both series. 
And then when Desiree Liu sold their studio and catalog to Paramount, uh, The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, and Star Trek became three of Paramount's greatest cash cows. And they exist to this day as such. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, uh, right into the films now. Um, Mission Impossible 2, which is not necessarily my favorite of the Mission Impossible series, featured a number of writers from Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, obviously, um, Mission Impossible 3, film-wise, was uh, directed by J.J. Abrams. And uh, the last two Mission Impossible films were produced by J.J. Abrams, uh, who also co-wrote and directed the two new Star Trek reboots. So I think it's kind of neat to see that... uh, um, Star Trek Mission Impossible Desilu uh, DNA relationship still existing to this day. Yeah, that's kind of nuts. I mean, I, I was aware of, uh, uh, I'd, I'd heard the Landau Nimoy story and, and, uh, and I've been, I was aware of like a lot of the actors jumping back and forth, but I wasn't, I, I never really considered the, uh, behind the camera connection before. Um, the thing that I always, uh, uh, loved about the, there was there was a tone. There was a tone that that even if you're uh, not aware of Desi Lu, you could watch those shows and and sort of spot like a stylistic, mm-hmm. right? Like a through line there. Like the, it was the music, it was the light. Mm-hmm. Especially those first two seasons of Star Trek, where the where the production design was so much better and mm-hmm. cinematography. And then same thing with Mission Impossible. Like early early on. They, you know, they they could practically pass for for films of the year. Very much so. Uh, they were like right? small, small scale films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was real ambition there, and they they really nailed it, and really um, uh, created characters that are more memorable than than uh, most of what we get on TV or in movies today. Which is actually, uh, f- for me, not to not to. Uh, Denigrate, not to either, n- denigrate, not to ruin the fun of the movies, but you know what? Here's uh, for the only shot I'll take at the movies. My biggest, biggest problem with them, with every single one of the Mission Impossible movies, is I have a hard time remembering the villains. Okay, right, that, that's fair enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I mean, com- compared to um, compared to the Bond villains, uh, or even compared to uh, 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 Man from Uncle. Now, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. just I mean, I, I remember the situation. Right, right, I remember, right. I remember right. who our what our villain is trying to do, but when I try to think back to the face, interesting. Uh, and it's funny that you should mention mission, uh, the second one not being among your favorites. I actually really liked the second one, and uh, Doug Ray Scott I thought was was pretty. I remember him more clearly than I remember uh, uh, the villains from Ghost Protocol, even okay, though I haven't okay. seen it in a right, lot right. longer. Um, maybe just because I liked him in that role, and mm-hmm. I like that, and I kind of like the you know. Uh, the overall arc of that story, which mm-hmm. is, it kind of took some directions that I didn't expect, and mm-hmm. it, it actually I had I was a little. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna throw one more gripe against Mission okay. Impossible, and yeah. this is one that every this is one everybody who grew up with the show has. Uh, it still kills me what they did with Jim Phelps in the first movie. Um, oh Lord, I, yeah, right? I okay. Uh, that, I gotta throw that's this like in. having Cap. That's like having Captain Kirk betray right the, next the Federation. Crew. Yes, I mean and, I, and I am can't watch that first movie anymore. I, I honestly, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I honestly. I hate, I really don't care for the first movie. I the first movie when it came out because there was no other Mission Impossible movie in existence at the time. Yeah, it was like an unnecessary evil. Kind of like I, I remember one um, <laughs> one uh, writer. I don't remember what article it was talking about sex, female sex symbols of the uh, uh, down through the years, and they mentioned the '60s and someone mentioned Twiggy, 
And he said, yeah, we'll take Twiggy because that's the only choice we had at the time. You know? <laughs> you know, a little while later, you had more hmm. curvaceous sex symbols like Raquel Welsh, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's definitely, you know, if I have a choice between Raquel Welsh and Twiggy, I'll take Raquel. But at the time, all we had was Twiggy, so okay, we'll take it. I kind of feel the same way about the first Mission Impossible movie. You know, um, that's all there was at the time. All right, I'll take it. But I was never nuts about it. Primarily because of that whole Jim Phelps thing, but also because I just felt the film feels it's more clever than it really is. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, to be honest with you, the second film, directed by John Woo, the one with Doug Ray Scott, I think mm-hmm. is a fantastic action film, but I don't really think of it as a this day. My favorite of the lot is still the third film. Um, that J.J. Uh, Abrams directed, mm. and uh, the one where Philip Seymour Hoffman was the villain, who, for me, is, to this day, the most memorable of the film villains, A, because he's just a very good actor, and he made that character a little more interesting to me, but also right. because I love how that film, for me, was the first one to really capture the tone of the series, which the main tone of the series is, forgive my French, as they say, mind-fucking. You know, um, you take a character and you make him think or her think that there's a situation going on. There was one Mission Impossible episode where they made someone who was down in a bunker believe that an atomic war had happened topside, <laughs> you know, and all of this was to sweat information out <laughs> of them. Uh, so I love how they screwed with your head in the original Mission Impossible series. And I like how in that particular film, the first half of the film has the IMF crew, led by Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise's character, mind-fucking the bad guys. And then the second half has the bad guys mind-fucking the good guys. (laughs) So I just thought that was just very cleverly (laughs) written. So to this day, that's my favorite one, just because I think it really captures the essence of the series. Um, Now, Ghost Protocol and the new film, um, I do enjoy immensely, um, because I think they hold on to Mm -hmm. that core screwing with your head idea not as much as the third film they a, a little more toward the action arena but i think they still hold on to it and uh as such i think that now they are getting better and better i really dug if i have one big gripe though with the films in the same way that you said you don't think they had a memorable villain i feel none of them have the scores to all the films are really good. The first film was scored by Danny Elfman. The second film was scored by Hans Zimmer. Uh, the, the, the next two films were scored by Michael Giacchino. And the last film was uh, scored by Joe Kramer. They're all great composers. They all made great scores. But with the exception of Lalo Schifrin's ultimately badass Mission Impossible theme and also little reminders of a, a, a theme called The Plot, which you hear in the movies and the TV series, none of the films have their own themes. Kind of like the Bond films, and mm-hmm. I'm not trying to compare Mission yeah. Impossible to Bond. That's not fair. But I think any good film series, I've, I've, I've had this complaint with the Marvel films. Most of them don't have memorable themes. It's kind of like you have the James Bond theme, which arises every now and then in a Bond film. But each film, because it has a separate character, a separate personality, a very distinct setting, has its own separate and distinct musical motif. You know, you have the man with the golden gun theme, Mm -hmm. which ironically is one of the least interesting vocal themes, but instrumentally it's one of the most interesting. There are certain themes to the Bond films that you find yourself humming or whistling when you leave the theater, in addition to the James Bond theme. I think the Mission Impossible films 
have a little bit of an over-reliance on the Lalo Schifrin theme, and they don't really take chances in creating their own identity music-wise. For me, that would be my one gripe with the films, which I do enjoy on the whole. You don't look like you slept much last night, Mr. Devaney. Funny you should say that, Madame Vigiguera. I think this scotch is helping either. Or a suspicious man. I would say you put something in my drink. It's much easier to trust a drink you fixed yourself. But how do you know I was going to drink the scotch? I didn't. I laced all the drinks. I'm afraid it isn't going to stop you cutting home. Sleep well, Napoleon. Only my mother calls me Napoleon. Built Vortbinder Landsman 7010 model. Still very difficult to open, but it's not. Impossible. People who designed this model are not very good at stealing things. I, however, am. Did you deactivate alarm? Model 7010 doesn't have an alarm. Loving your work, cowboy. No one really knows why some things tend to be, for lack of a better term, generational, while others span decades. Take The Man from Uncle. Running four seasons from 1964 to 1968, the height of the spy fi craze on NBC, it was unique among its peers and competition in that. Unlike, say, The Wild Wild West or even Mission Impossible, like the Bond films, it spawned a multi-million dollar cottage industry of ancillaries. Everything from book adaptations, board games, models, toys and arcade games, to a slew of cover albums, a spin-off show, The Girl from Uncle, and even a series of immensely successful theatrical feature films during the mid-1960s culled from original TV episodes with expanded and additional footage. Yet in spite of its status as the proverbial hot franchise property for so long, and the fact that numerous filmmakers from Quentin Tarantino to Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney had been attempting for years to get a big screen version into theaters, when Guy Ritchie's clever feature film Redux opened in August 2015, in spite of some decent reviews, it was certainly unlike Mission Impossible, referred to by many of those same critics as adapted from a series no one ever heard of. 
The quintessential spy-fi series, in fact, many say the term was specifically coined for the show, the man from UNCLE's daringly clever at the time chief narrative conceit was that War of the Worlds-like, during the height of the Cold War, a threat could arise of such fearful magnitude that the antagonistic nations of the world would have to pool their resources to repel it. Such a threat was the international criminal-slash-terrorist organization Thrush, and a counter-organization created to combat it was UNCLE, the International United Network Command for Law Enforcement. With sections and agents around the globe, the series focused on the adventures of partnered American agents Napoleon Solo, portrayed by the Magnificent Seven's Robert Vaughn, and Soviet intel operative Ilya Kuryakin, played by English actor David McCullum, best known to American audiences from the film The Great Escape. The two based at Uncle's main headquarters in New York, not far from the United Nations building. Perhaps second only to the original The Twilight Zone, The Man from Uncle proved to be one of the most fertile training grounds for an up-and-coming generation of filmic artists and performers who dominate the next 20 years of cinema and television. Its writers, including future Chinatown shampoo scribe Robert Town, O. Calcutta's Sherman Yellen, and science fiction stalwart Harlan Ellison. Its popular theme song was by future Patton and the Omen composer Jerry Goldsmith, with numerous episodes scored by Lalo Schifrin, Dave Grusin, Gerald Freed, and Frank Sinatra's own Nelson Riddle. And its who's who roster of guest stars included Joan Crawford, Janet Lee, Angela Lansbury, Fritz Weaver, Jack Palance, William Shatner, and Leonard Nimoy, in the same episode, by the way, Ricardo Montalban, Telly Savalas, Rip Torn, Kim Darby, Nancy Sinatra, and even a young boy named Kurt Russell. In 2007, the still charmingly smooth Robert Vaughn reminisced about his days with Uncle. When you talked to Norman Feldman, uh, <coughs> did he tell you the backstory of him working with Ian Fleming? And how Ultimately, he did, yes. He told me after we made the deal, he said, well, the reason I stopped you that day in the office when, you, when we first met, he said, because we're, we're, ha- we're having a little problem, he said, and we want to kind of play down, matter of fact, we're going to change the name of the show, we're going to take Solo away from it, because that's a character in Goldfinger, and we were having litigation problems with Ian Fleming, I think it, Fleming died somewhere along this period of time, so uh, I learned about the problem after I was already cast, and we shot the pilot the week that Kennedy was killed, or President Kennedy was killed. Could you, just for the people that don't know, could you just talk about the premise of The Man from Uncle? Yes, the premise was that uh, there was this organization called the United Network Command for Law Enforcement. That's what Uncle stood for. And uh, the people who worked for them were, I guess you could assume they were a combination of the CIA and the United Nations mm-hmm. and any other mythical or real uh, kind of uh, organization that is developing relationships with the outside world, international spying and so on. And it was all kind of unclear what it all was, but there were many different people from many different countries as part of the Uncle organization, which is, they, they pushed that very hard to make everybody understand that this was an international organization. The Man from Uncle was a show that, when I, when I was a kid, this was, this was kind of the happy medium between as gritty as Bond could sometimes be and as goofy as Get Smart was. <laughs> there was this, right? There was this optimism behind the man from Uncle that we could have a Soviet agent and an American agent kind of, sort of partners. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Maybe they are. And, like, and, 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 but this, this could even happen um, at a time where every other show was treating uh, the Soviet Union as nothing but the evil empire. Um, 
I, even as a little kid, I just love the idea because, I mean, a little kid, you look at that and your only understanding of it is, wow, that's kind of like if the Federation and the Klingons teamed up. Right, right. right. <laughs> and, Which eventually did happen. Go figure, right, yeah. Right, so right. Man from Uncle <laughs> was even ahead of that curve. So, um, yeah, it's it's basically, yeah, that's that's the word that, that always jumped out to me, optimism. Like, it just seemed like this this show sees a better world and uh um and sees it happening on such a micro level and it 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 kind of i think part of why i became a political junkie was at an early age seeing this and thinking wow when 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 countries when when these two great forces come together it's not going to be a president and a soviet premier sitting down it's going to be guys like this in the shadows doing all kinds of work that we never hear about Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I love that this show kind of dramatized that and played with it and had fun with it and made you scared about it. It, 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 it. Um, there was charm. There was fear. There was everything. I mean, it's, if, if that isn't entertainment, I don't know what the hell is, right? right. And uh, uh, and Robert Vaughn was just cool Robert shit. Vaughn, Robert, okay, <laughs> and, and, right? And and right about the same time, I first started watching it because I, I didn't see the original airings but when i first started watching the reruns was also right around the time that robert vaughn was touring with the um the one-man play he had about franklin delano roosevelt oh wow nice so yeah so i got to see both of those within the same year and oh, just wow. see that awesome. man this this guy can do anything i yes. want to follow him anywhere he goes and watch mm-hmm. whatever he does um and guy ritchie's film version uh you know film version i i you and I spoke about this. You saw it before I did, and I had my trepidation, and I had my trepidation for years. When I first heard, when I was still working in, in talent agencies, and I heard rumors of this thing possibly coming to light, as soon as Mission Impossible had a great, the first one had a great opening weekend, all of a sudden, well, let's do, let's do Man from Uncle, let's do Time Tunnel, let's do Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea again. Why don't we just drag that up from the depth right they were they were looking for and and like every couple of years there would be into some other attempt for it and i just figured okay it's never going to happen after 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 hearing so many times that it was going to happen i just kind of wrote it off as something that never was and by the although that uh, steven soderbergh george clooney version right. i was kind of i i thought that that might have worked I, I was excited for that one that, that was actually yeah, the one yeah, iteration yeah. that i was kind of kind of excited for and when it didn't ha- when that i figured yeah and when that didn't happen i figured well pff, if that can't if that can't make the, the light it, day, yeah, it's right. not gonna um so when this is coming i and one that it's coming at all this late in the game and two that it's coming at the end of summer um well it feels like they're just throwing it out into the graveyard right no one cares but you know we should all remember that in 1993 when jurassic park owned the entire summer another tv remake the fugitive opened up late august and was a hell of a movie right so there is room for that to happen um and just like the fugitive this one batted it out of the park to a degree that the more i think about it the more i like it and uh, you know i walked out of going you know what i'm glad i saw that and i'm glad i paid for it and voted with my dollars so that god forbid that you know it might actually have a, a couple of sequels in it mm-hmm. or something um but and then the more i'm thinking about it the it just it just hit on so many levels uh uh first and foremost let's just look at our two leads you know we got superman and the lone ranger Right? Superman playing (laughs) the American, the Robert Vaughn character, Napoleon Solo. And we got the Lone Ranger, Army Hammer, playing uh, Ilya Kuryakin. Um, Two guys who I've liked as actors, but I haven't necessarily loved them as Superman or the Lone Ranger. Here, I love them. It's like, finally, they, they found the right gig for both of these guys. They're having fun. We're having fun. This needs to be the beginning of a franchise, I think. Yeah. 
My original uh, 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 introduction to the man from Uncle was from my uncle. My uncle. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Um, my uncle was a uh, he was an illustrator, not a professional one, but he he was an artist. He would draw all the time, and I would try to imitate him. And in time, I be- became an illustrator. Went to the Arts Institute of Philadelphia, but left there and became a writer. There you go. Things happen. But I remember my uncle was cool. My uncle was very, very cool. He was the coolest guy in our neighborhood, uh, my Uncle Lloyd. <laughs> and uh, I remember him drawing the Starship Enterprise and me trying to imitate him. I remember him drawing. Anyway, and whatever he dug, I found myself digging. And Star Trek was one of them. The Rat Patrol was another one, the TV series. Um, and The Man from Uncle was another one. And I remember falling in love. The Wild Wild West was one too, uh, but the Man from Uncle I remember falling in love with because my uncle, Lo- my uncle Lloyd, who was so cool, dug the Man from Uncle, and that's how I originally got into it. Uh, years later, I would come to realize the significance of the whole, you know, uh, Cold War bridging of uh, gaps thing, which was kind of cool. But um, what I I love the movie. Uh, now, interestingly, a lot of people are thinking of it as not a huge success, but, and this is a relative price, the movie only, for lack of a better term, cost $75 million, huh. which is certainly more money than I have in my back pocket or in my bank account right now, True. but as far as summer blockbusters go, that's pretty slim. It looked a lot better than a lot of $200 million. Hell yeah. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, so, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, so for the money... I love the fact that, and uh, and for me, for lack of a better term, I think of this as a quintessential Guy Ritchie film, mm-hmm. in the way that I would think of something like Inglorious Bastards as a quintessential Quentin Tarantino film, in that, um, what I like about the film, I think people, I, I was kind of disappointed that it came out during the summer, I think it would work better uh, around Christmas time, yes. because following a few weeks on the heels of something like Mission Impossible, uh, Ro- Rogue Nation... I think people are going to be expecting a big balls-to-the-wall action film. And even though this has some nifty action sequences, it's a little more akin, tone-wise, to the first Michael Ritchie Sherlock Holmes film with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, in that you have two characters that we come to fall in love with. And because we like these characters so much, we are so involved and engrossed in what they're going through. The humor, the suspense, the possible betrayal of one another, the, uh, you know, all of that is really old-fashioned, great cinematic stuff. But on top of that, I think as just a film fan, I think any film fan will recognize this as not just Michael Ritchie's, um, Michael Ritchie, I'm sorry, wrong director, (laughs) (laughs) Guy Guy Ritchie's, uh, uh, homage to the original series, but it's kind of I see it as Guy Ritchie's uh, homage to 60s cinema in general. Just from its design and the look, you see the Fellini films, the big bright colors and the staging and the uh, uh, the um, um, just the structure of, of uh, the framing of mm-hmm, the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the score by yes. Daniel Pemberton. It's um, I mean, there are so many influences. Uh, I hear John Barry, but not the big, bombastic, wonderful, brassy, big band John Barry of the Bond movies like Goldfinger and Thunderball, but the more intimate John Barry of stor- stories like The, Ip- the Ipcris File mm-hmm. and The Quiller Memorandum. I hear Henry Mancini and Charade. 
I hear Ennio Morricone. And I love how the fact that uh, the Kuriakon character refers to Napoleon Solo as cowboy. Mm-hmm. And so Napoleon Solo's theme is very Morricone-esque, you know, very cowboy-esque. Mm-hmm. I th- thought that was brilliant. I hear a little Michel Legrand and the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And just this past weekend, a French composer uh, who came to Philadelphia, and we just hung out this weekend, and... Um, we were listening to the score as you were driving to the Lenny Kravitz concert. <laughs> we, were listening to the man, the, we were listening to the man from Uncle Score in the car, and I, I never got this. And it's like, how could I not get that? It's so obvious. He picked up Lalo Schifrin and the score to Bullet, you know, oh, wow. just in to- tone-wise. And I was like, damn. And it's all there. Um, I think visually and audio, uh, orally, the man from Uncle is just wonderful cinema geeks love letter to 60s cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's fun, it's funny, it's exciting, and it's cool. So, yeah, I I think The Man From U.N.C.L.E. is a film which deserves to be seen and discussed more than it really is. But the nice thing is that because it didn't cost $200 million, it doesn't have to make $400 million in order to hopefully have another installment. So, yeah. So, we'll see how that goes. I knew it was too early to promote you. Well, I understand double O's have a very short life expectancy. So your mistake will be short-lived. finally released this. What is it? Personal effects they recovered from Skyfall. You've got a secret. Something you can't tell anyone. Because you don't trust anyone. I always knew death would wear a familiar face. But what's yours? I was at a meeting recently and your name came up. Unflattered London is still talking about me. It wasn't MI6. Welcome, James. It's been a long time. And finally, here we are. All right. So when we're looking at the three most popular incarnations of Spy-Fi, Mission Impossible, The Man from Uncle and Bond, we come full circle opening and closing with the granddaddy of the genre, old 007 himself. A hell of a lot of opinions uh, banging about the internet and uh, social media these days on the Daniel Craig Bond films in general and the upcoming Spectre in particular. From, yeah, onto badass again, to the films have become too dark and violent and pretentious. 
But before any discussion of where the Bond films are going can take place, you kind of have to talk about where they've been, as the series, the longest running in film history, has often, and necessarily, though maybe not popularly, changed with the times. For example, Roger Moore gets a lot of flack that he doesn't deserve, but the fact of the matter is, I think his sense of humor and his lighter take on the Bond film did two things. One, um, they helped the film survive. Because I think if the films had attempted to continue to be hard-edged Cold War thrillers, when the public mindset changed, the Bond films would have died. Mm -hmm. The fact that the Moore films were a little lighter in tempo, I think, was their saving grace. It gave them a little more elbow room to allow them to take a few steps backward and then take a few more steps forward. So that's one. The other thing is, and I remember a um, a director saying this, Mm -hmm. they mentioned how Roger Moore has always been a fantastic expert at sophisticated comedy. And because he is so good at that, he is so underrated at that, during some of those few moments, some of which you may have been referring to just recently, when he really got serious, like the scene in For Your Eyes Only, where he kicks the car over the side of the cliff. Yes. Or, or, or yeah, or a scene at the mm-hmm. end of Octopussy, where he's been wearing the co- clown costume, and but he's been tracing, he's been tracking this nuclear weapon, which is about to go off, you know, in Eastern Europe. And during yeah. the last few minutes, yeah. when he's trying That's to get the weapon, yeah. and people are not taking him seriously, he's really serious. He's not bullshitting. And someone once said, yeah, it really is. It really grips you. And someone once said, because we're so used to seeing him doing mm-hmm. things lightly, yeah. in those rare moments when he's serious, it gives those moments a little more gravitas. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought and up that specific true. scene because Sean Connery, no, never, never mind Sean Connery, nobody else could have done the clown suit. General, that bomb is on that train and it's later scheduled to leave and that's 90 seconds from now. None of the others could have sold that moment. And you're right, that was a great, great moment. When Dalton came along, I thought it was you know the, I, I liked Living Daylights. I th- um, yeah, Living Daylights. I thought it was I thought we were heading back toward Daniel Craig territory. Uh, uh, License to Kill was just uh, really. Uh, I, I love yeah. License to Kill. License yeah. to Kill borrows borrows a lot from the novel Live and Let Die. Yeah, I think it was perhaps a little too dark. I think it was perhaps too much like the novels when people weren't ready to go that way yet. My my problem, you know, my my problem with it is an entirely a production design thing. It just felt too much ah. like, like a late eighties, like I'm I'm waiting for like Jeff Speakman to show up. You know, it just it just felt too, too sun drenched and too wanting okay. wanting to be hip of what was passing, what was cool to women. And I know Bond has sometimes done that really well. We right, talked right, about right. you meant you t- we touched on black exploitation earlier. No need to live and let die. Mm-hmm. You know, they t- Star Wars comes out huge. Let's go to the moon, do Moonraker, even right, though the right, book right, has right. Uh-huh. fuck all to do with that. But it's got moon in the title. Let's do James yeah. Bond in space. You know, so yeah, they they have License to Kill is very much a response to the Joel Silver action movie. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the it word even, I'm looking even for. has a lot yeah. of the same cast members. Yes, of yeah. the Joel Silver films. Yeah, um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I liked it. I just wish it had been a little better. Uh, and I, and I, <laughs> okay. I love, uh, I love. Um, Fair enough. Uh, I'm drawing a blank now, but the villain, uh, the guy who used to play Eyeshot. Oh yeah. Movies, oh um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, 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 damn it, Robert Davi. D- no, Davi was great, but then also um, uh, the heavy set oh. guy. Um, oh god. Oh, uh, You're uh, gonna have to edit this out. This is terrible. What the hell's the nah. matter with me? Who? Uh, uh, Don Stroud. 
No, no. Oh, this is, oh, we're terrible people. How do we not know this? Now it's getting wait, so wait, awful wait. that it needs to be included. Are we um, talking about we're talking about license to we're kill. We're talking about license to kill. Okay, well, we got Benicio del Toro. We no, got you're, you're right. It was, we got it was, Anthony Zerbi. It was, it, was, it was Anthony Zerbi. Oh, okay, all right. That's right. the name. Of, and how could I struggle for that name and not get it? Because, yeah. It's 70s cinema. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, and also after whining about memorable villains in uh, Mission Impossible, I should have been better able to remember that. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but uh, yeah, so so uh, and and so when the first uh, uh, Timothy Dalton film comes along, it's, okay, good, we're heading in the right direction. Goldeneye came out, felt like hey, okay, maybe, and then the next two, okay, yeah, now we're heading in the right direction. I, I, I love Tomorrow Never Dies. I like The Me World too. Is Not mm-hmm. Enough. A lot of it. Not so much yeah. after Denise Richard shows up, but the beginning is great right, and the yeah. end is great. I agree, I agree. And then they blew Ooh. it. Now, Die Another Day, you know, oh man. The funny thing is... Parasailing over a tidal wave. The right away. Now, the, Bullshit. The is, Roger the Moore first, probably looked at that and thought, that's fucking ridiculous. Like, what the fu- right, like, it's kind of like, um, who was it? Um, I think it was uh, D.L. Hughley, comedian D.L. Hughley. Yes. He was talking about certain trials in recent years and how... Um, there were some trials that OJ looked at and said, "What? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how the hell? You know." And so, similarly, I can see like you know, like, like Roger Moore, same thing. Austin Powers watching Die Another Day. Go, what? Yeah, you know. Yes. However, the first half of Die Another Day, I love. Uh, the first half of Die Another Day is taken right from the novel yeah. and is actually taken from some of the same material that they mined in Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Um, the end of the novel, you only live twice. The beginning of the novel, the man with the golden gun. Bond disappears, goes over a waterfall, in fact, mm-hmm. and is presumed dead and missing for like 18 months. He's uh, being tortured, what have you. This is the novels. At the beginning of the novel, the man with the golden gun, he returns to, which is Fleming's last Mon novel, he returns to England, and uh, MI6 doesn't know whether he's been brainwashed or not. It's possible he may have been brainwashed to assassinate M. Uh, M still trusts Bond and sends him on a mission, even though he is not officially cleared to do so. M's modus operandi being, okay... Right now, most people think he's a traitor. Mm-hmm. If he goes on a mission and succeeds, he will clear his name. If he goes on a mission and fails, well, they wanted him dead anyway. Mm. Okay? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, the beginning of Die Another Day, it's kind of the same thing. And the beginning of Skyfall, it's kind of the same thing, where M lets Bond go out on this operation. If he succeeds, fine. If not, well, okay. Um, that I love. And uh, when he goes to Cuba... And he has dealings with former revolutionaries. That's stuff that's kind of right out of the John Gardner 1980s, 1990s Bond novels. I dug that. But as soon as we go to Iceland yeah. and we get the Ice Palace and... Yes. Uh, and Even the uh, Ice Palace I was okay with. It seemed like, okay, here's a new lair we haven't seen yet. But then it just got ridiculous. Yeah. The, and, the first and, time and we saw it, oh, this is great. And then they just kind of blew it. Yeah. But that whole second half... So for me... The first, and I've actually mentioned this in, in an article or two, the first half of Die Another Day is one of the best Bond films. The second half of Die, Die Another Day is one of the worst Bond films. <laughs> which, which is what makes it that much more egregious.
And as to which side of the fence the upcoming specter will fall, we'll find out October 26 in the UK and November 6 in the US and the rest of the world. As lifelong movie and movie tech geeks, we're personally pretty psyched that the cinematographer for the upcoming Bond 24 this time around will be not Sam Mendes' frequent go-to guy, the legendary Roger Deakins, but Dutch director of photography Hoyte van Hoytema, who in recent years has conjured up some pretty stunning images for Let the Right One In, The Fighter, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and Interstellar. As for today's show, time to check out, as we've already run just a tad longer than originally planned. But hey, the Spy-Fi guys kind of definitely deserved it, don't you think? And as for the next couple of episodes of the movie Sneak, Jim and I have had in the planning stages a big one for some time, centered around faith in film, wherein we'll be bringing in both theologians and filmmakers to offer commentary, both pro and con, on classic biblical-based cinema such as The Ten Commandments and The Robe, as well as, at times, controversial, newer offerings like The Passion of the Christ, Noah, and Exodus, God and Kings. And as the filmic world was just last weekend gut-stuck by the passing of legendary writer-director Wes Craven, we've got our own tribute lined up there as well, though not necessarily of the kind most would expect. Known to most as the director of horror classics such as The Hills Have Eyes, Last House on the Left, and the Nightmare on Elm Street series, Serpent in the Rainbow, and the Scream films, Craven was a filmmaker who damn near everyone in Hollywood wanted to work with. For this reason, he was, and it's not always the case with director becomes pigeonholed into one genre, but he was able to do a number of non-franchise and non-horror genre projects, which attracted performers such as Meryl Streep and Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, and Ed- Emily Mortimer. Jim will pick his favorite Wes Craven non-franchise films, and so will I. Till then, big time thanks for joining us on the kickoff episode of the all-new The Movie Sneak with Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online and Jim Delaney of thelunchmovie.com. See you next time, up there in the cheap seats. Shh.